looking at those boxes that you see in your folder up on the screen, which of those diagrams do you think most accurately reflects what the Bible teaches about possessions and our use of them? Just give you a minute to think about that. Which of those three most accurately represents what God says in his word? Okay, the first one is a no, right? <laughs> that one's pretty obvious. But the first one is there is because it represents what's actually happening. 2.5% is the average of what people who normally come to church return to the Lord in their offerings. And it's interesting that that's lower in our affluent society than it was during the Depression. Christians going to church during the Great Depression gave a greater percentage than Christians do now. And you might think the middle one. Who picked the middle one? Looks pretty good, right? And what God says, he talks about 10%, doesn't he? He talks about the tithe. But look at the wording. 90% belongs to me. No, the truth of what the Bible teaches is the third one, right? Nothing belongs to me. Everything belongs to God. I return a portion of that to him to show that I honor him in response to his love for me. I return a portion, percentage of what he has given me back to him to show that I trust that he's going to care for me. But all of it really belongs to him. So proportionate giving begins with that. We recognize that God is the owner of all things. He is the one who gives everything. He is really the owner. Hey, where does the Bible say that? Top of the next page. A couple of passages, some that you know probably by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them, all of it. In John 1, 3, speaking about Jesus there, through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. It's kind of an aside that helps us with the understanding of the Trinity, right? God the Father says, let there be light. The Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. And John says, the Word is Jesus. He was there too. Nothing was created without him. The Spirit of God has made me, Job said. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. So we confess with Luther, God made me and all creatures, and he gave me my body and soul, my eyes and ears, my mind and all my abilities. He's the one who didn't just create everything, he created me too. Then the next two. The Lord said, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. God doesn't owe us or anybody anything. It already belongs to him. In Exodus 19.6, The Lord said, The whole earth is mine. So, God is the one who created everything. And... 
He is the one, therefore, to whom everything belongs. He owns everything that exists, including us and all that we have. Our bodies, our souls, our cars, our homes, our fields, whatever it is that we have, everything really belongs to him. But our nature, our sinful nature, doesn't like that. Our sinful nature resents God's ownership. Think of the way we talk about wealth and possessions. At every step, we forgetful of the fact that God owns everything. And what's one of the first words little children learn? Yep, mine. You got it. Good job. <laughs> That's mine, right? And you're fighting over the toy. These little kids are fighting over the toy, and they're yelling, mine. Okay? That's the way we think about it. That's our sinful nature. We might be talking about our salary, and we say, last year I made, I earned, put in the blank, right? 52000 whatever it might be. I did it. Or you might look at someone who started out with nothing and built up this great empire, and now they're a millionaire, a billionaire. We, we admire that person who put in all that work. It's kind of a self-made man. But, what does James say? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. He's the one that created it all. He's the one that gives us our intellect, gives us our time, gives us our possessions. We have it because he gives it to us. Maybe you saw some of those commercials or heard them on the radio, Man Says, God Says. We've got a few examples of that printed out for you. Man says, God, God says. So think about God's answers and see if you can come up with a summary of what God says in response. No, man says, I put in my time. God says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. How would you summarize what God says? I put in my time. God says. Any thoughts? Put in my time. Your time is a mist, right? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're not the one that's in control. God is. Next one, man says, it's my brain and talent that are responsible for my success. I'm a self-made man. God says, I've filled him, Hazalel, with the spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge for all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, to cut stones, and to work in wood. This is in connection with the building of the tabernacle in the desert. So God had given them the plans, all these things they were supposed to make. Could Basil say, look what I did? He did it. But God says, I gave you the ability, right? I gave you the gifts be able to do that. 
and says, I've worked hard for what I've got. God says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. I worked hard for what I have. True, right? He probably did. He worked hard. But what does God say? I gave you the ability. I gave you the time. I gave you the opportunity. I'm still the one that deserves the credit. Take away. If I don't recognize God's complete ownership, that's idolatry. You're putting yourself above God. And if that's the case, God calls to repent, right? Confess that. Acknowledge that you've made yourself more important than God. On the other hand, if I do recognize God's complete ownership and his, as his forgiven child, you know, what, look what God has done for me. Look how he has blessed me. Everything I have is his, and yet he lets me use it. So I'm happy to give generously. One side, if my life's focus is on earthly possessions, every day I live as a day coming closer to losing everything. And that's what we heard last week with the man with the barns, right? I'll build bigger barns and then I'll be set for life. And God says, you fool. Your soul will be required of you tonight and then what good are all those things going to do you? You've lost everything, unfortunately, including your soul. Other side? If my life's focus is on heaven, then every day I live is a day I come closer to gaining everything. Not in the sense that we've earned it, but we recognize these things are a gift from God and he showers those blessings on us. So as a new man of faith, our faith that recognizes all that belongs to God, our faith that wants to respond to God, for all that he's done for us and says, how can I thank you, Lord, for all you've done for me? We've got lots of questions. So, the Bible says, give in proportion to what God has given to you. Gladly, cheerfully, for God loves a cheerful giver. What's proportion? What does that mean? How much? Well, we've got some examples from the Bible. We know that Abraham gave 10%. He gave a tithe. And you might remember the context. A bunch of kings came and attacked Sodom and Gomorrah, and they captured Lot and his family. And Abraham rounded up 300-some men from his own family, his own household. He went after those kings, defeated them, rescued Lot, and rescued the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and was coming back. And this man called Melchizedek came out and met him. And Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. Abraham recognized that and gave him a tenth of all that he had. In the Old Testament law commanded that people give not just a tithe, but as you study the Old Testament, it's multiple tithes. And there was 10% for the support of the Levites, there was 10% for the support of the festivals, three great festivals, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, and then 
Once every three years, another 10% went to the poor. And so if you've got someone who's kind of legalistic saying, well, in the Old Testament, God said it's got to be 10%, and now you've got to give 10%, well, they're wrong. You've got to give more like 23%. So legalism has to go out the door there. We can't demand what was commanded to the Old Testament people. Zacchaeus, when he had Jesus come to his house and Jesus said, here's a son of Abraham, he was assured that his sins were forgiven. He spontaneously said, I'm going to give half of all I have and I'm going to return double whatever I might have taken from anybody. Jesus didn't say he had to do that, didn't demand that he did that. He willfully, on his own, said, I want to give half of everything I have. The widow of Zarephath and the widow at the temple, they both gave all that they had. Remember, Elijah came and the, the widow was there and Elijah said, go and cook that last loaf of bread. You've only got flour and oil for one more, and you said, I'm going to make this, and then I think we're going to starve to death because we don't have any more food. And Elijah said, go ahead and make it and bring it to me. And she did. You know what happened next, right? The flour and the oil never ran out. God provided for their needs each day, one day at a time. And the widow of the temple, she gave all that she had, Jesus says. So, what do we give? What is a proper amount? We can't be legalistic on that. We can't say it has to be a certain number or a certain percentage, but it just says in proportion to what God has given you. He leaves it up to us in Christian freedom. Looking at wants and needs. Okay, how much do I need to live on. This one's kind of fun. In catechism class, we always talk about this in connection with the Seventh Commandment. What do you need? What's a need? And technically, a need is, if I don't have it, I'll die. That's a need. So what's a need? Got to have water, got to have some food, got to have some shelter, got to have some clothing. But, none of those have to be very fancy. Think of the people of Israel. Forty years, they lived in tents. That was their shelter. They wore the same clothes that they were able to take out with them from Egypt. Didn't have any new clothes, no place to get any. They're out in the wilderness. And yet God says, I didn't let it wear out. Not even your shoes wore out, even though you were walking all the time. Lived in tents. That was their shelter, their clothing, manna, ate manna every day for 40 years. Not something you choose, but their need was supplied, right? Water from the flock, from the rock when they needed it. And so that's what you need, just the basic necessities. And when we look at that, all of us have a whole lot more than we need. And God showers his blessings upon us or physical blessings. So consider two examples. A single mom with two kids makes 30 grand. Her offering is $2,500. Another family, double income, two kids, 
makes $110,000 a year, they give $11,000. The second couple gave more in both ways, right? They have greater percentage and greater dollar amount. But what else do you think about? Okay, 30,000 minus 2,500, how much you have to live on? $110,000 minus $11,000, how much do you have to live on? That second couple has an opportunity to be even more generous, right? Because all of their needs are more than covered and they have lots of their wants already covered. Uh, they have an opportunity to be even more generous than giving that 10%. I like this question. What will my investments be earning 50,000 years from now? Answer? Doesn't matter, you won't be here, right? <laughs> 50,000 years from now, it doesn't matter whatever your investments will be earning then because you're going to be gone, right? As a believer, you're going to be in heaven. Doesn't really matter. But, what if you gave some of your money to the Lord? And Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Martin Luther said, I've held many things in my hands, and I've lost them all. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. So it doesn't really matter what your investments are earning 50,000 years from now, but what about treasure in heaven? What will that investment be doing 50,000 years from now? That one's still providing something, isn't it? Whatever you gave to spread the gospel, whatever you gave to help your congregation continue, whatever you gave to uh, part of it being used to send out missionaries all over the world, those investments continue forever. And maybe one day, someone will walk up to you in heaven and say, you because God used some of your gifts to make sure that I learned about Jesus and now here I am with you in heaven. That's an eternal investment that continues more than 50,000 years. It continues forever. What's our motivation? Do we truly appreciate and understand what Jesus has done for us? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Just think of that. We always want to think, it says, of upward mobility. Think of Jesus' downward mobility, right? He's in heaven. He's one with the Father. He has everything, happiness beyond what we can even imagine, everything. Can't even imagine what Jesus had in heaven, and he gave it up to become poor, to come down to this earth, to live here with us, and not to come as a king, not to come to be served, though he could have demanded it, but claim to give up his life 
to pay for our sins. He was rich, but he came poor for your sake, for people who didn't deserve it, for people who deserved to have him come down in judgment, but instead he came down in grace and went to the cross. He did it all so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Well, what riches did he have? Everything in heaven, right? That's what he wants you to have. That's what he wants me to have. He wants us to have those eternal riches in heaven. He wants us to be with him forever and live in that place where we talked about in the sermon, happiness that never ends. No evil, no sickness, no pain, no death, no sorrow. The most wonderful place of all, all because of what he's done for us. Main point, our motivation, our generosity doesn't come from just studying passages that talk about stewardship. It doesn't just come from the law that can never produce generosity, and at least not the kind that God wants. He wants cheerful givers. He doesn't want us to give under compulsion because something says you should but he wants us to be cheerful givers in response to what he's given us, which is eternal life in heaven. That's the way that the Holy Spirit motivates us. He uses the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, then to motivate us to be faithful stewards, to give ourselves completely to serving him in faith, serving our neighbor in love, doing everything we can to get his gospel to the ends of the earth, which is what he's asked us to do not to get something from him, but because of what he's already given us in Jesus. Okay, again, this week uh, you'll have something in your email, uh, another devotional thought on stewardship. And then next Sunday will be our third of the three studies on 10 for 10 stewardship emphasis. Please stand. Brothers and sisters, go in peace, live in harmony with one another, serve the Lord with gladness. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord